This is Cinephile. This is incredible. One of the best actors alive here in the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Vigo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brockmeyer, and I completely punted that one. Darren Aronofsky's self-pitying cinematic rending of garments is repulsive, transparent, and pointless. A grotesquely wrapped gift box of utter banality. That might be one of my favorite critic quotes to start the podcast. That's a Marianne Johansson of Flick Philosopher. Mother... With an exclamation point. Mother! All the films we'll be reviewing this time on Cinephile. Great to have you with us, as always. Check us out on iTunes. Rate and review us. I do the movies at a four Maple Leafs. Uh, please do them at a five stars. Thanks to all those who listened last time. Last Rampage, currently available. VOD, Robert Patrick. Check it out. Um, great podcast coming up for you today. As always, whatever the people want, we're going to give them. Jeff had tweeted, can you do Dustin Hoffman? Actor Showcase. I said, you bet I can. Plethora of choices. One of the great American actors, Dustin Hoffman, gets the Actors Showcase. Streaming suggestions with movies coming out next month. One of my favorite interviews that we've done so far in Cinephile, the great Richard Lewis will join us to talk about the new season of Curb. And we talked about Score, the documentary. And so Matt Schrader, the writer-director, is going to join us. Uh, his camp got a hold of me after they heard me uh, give a positive review last time in the pod. So he said, want to talk to the Matt? I said, let's do it. So uh, he's got a lot of good background on the documentary. I urge you to check it out once again um, I saw it on DirecTV, but I'm sure there's lots of other options in terms of streaming to find score documentary. And also, Wolf of Wall Street gets the Scorsese story treatment this time around four years ago. But it feels like it was longer ago. I, maybe I just haven't seen it enough. I saw it in the theater, obviously. Liked it a lot. And then I saw it again on DVD, and then I watched it again. So uh, plenty of Scorsese stories from 70-year-old Marty. With You know, the best... Line is, is DiCaprio called the modern-day Kalugula. It, it is amazing to see just how much stuff they crammed. Him, Jonah Hill, all the rest of it. Everything good, Dan? How you doing? Yeah, isn't it Caligula? Caligula. What did I say? Kalugula? Yeah, it was It was off. <laughs> Big uh, Marty and Leo news, too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for mentioning. Yeah, so uh, Marty and Leo, Theodore Roosevelt, they've optioned uh, this film to make. Now... Here's where my enthusiasm is tempered. They've optioned a lot of things. And as somebody had tweeted, and I laughed immediately, they said, okay, wait, uh, can't wait for the Sinatra movie and the Devil in the White City. And what about the Joker movie? So, listen, I heard about this a while ago, that Leo is going to play Theodore Roosevelt. Marty's going to direct it. Political biopic seems to be of their interest. Theodore Roosevelt, Dan would know a lot more than I, but reading about it, didn't realize he was very active in conservation efforts. Leo, of course, very uh, obsessed with environmental change and climate change. So I was like, all right, I could see the, the allure for him. Marty loves doing historical stories. But honestly, it's not happening anytime soon because Marty right now is doing The Irishman. I tweeted recently, there's some pictures of them uh, on location shooting it in New York. It's great to see Marty and Pesci and De Niro together. I didn't see any of the pictures of Pacino in the stills that they sent out. So they've got to do The Irishman first. 
And then I don't know if that means Roosevelt or The Devil in the White City or Sinatra but or the Joker movie. But uh, regardless, it is good to hear that at least Marty and Leo uh, will be collaborating as well. And, of course, the big news, Masterclass, which I'd taken in the past of David Mamet, Marty is going to be having a Masterclass. So my friend Hussein alerted me. I immediately dropped what I was doing, signed up. And then they have a, a clock telling you when it's going to start. So it's like 128 days away from Martin Scorsese's Masterclass. If you don't know what it is, if you're new to the podcast, these master classes are invaluable. There's um, one that Steve Martin did for comedy, Kevin Spacey for acting, Aaron Sorkin for writing. I took the Mammoth one. But it's about six hours long, uh, 20 lessons each, uh, about maybe about 10 minutes apiece, something like that. And uh, they go through step-by-step their process. So for Marty, obviously there's going to be one section about editing and one about musical choices and one about camera work and so on. And the trailer for it's amazing. It's just Marty talking. He says, you know, if you have an interest in movies, then this is not the class for you. If you feel like with every fiber of your being you have to make motion pictures, then this is something you'll be interested in. I'm like, it's just, it's just pure, Marty. It's so good. Go watch the trailer to Masterclass and then sign up for Scorsese's class. It's 90 bucks. Uh, by my arithmetic, it'll be coming out in February. So after the Super Bowl, we can all dive in for the Masterclass. And that means Scorsese's stories is not going anywhere. I would have thought eventually I would run out of stories. But now, whatever the lesson is, I'll just recap it for all of you if you're not taking the lesson. So... Cannot wait for that. Props to the crew of Masterclass for luring someone like Marty. And speaking of filmmakers, HBO has a Spielberg documentary coming out October 7th. I had mentioned last year when they had the De Palma documentary, I said, I wish they did this for all filmmakers. So I can't wait to see the Spielberg documentary. If you see that trailer on HBO featured in the commercial is Leo and Marty. Of course, Scorsese, good friends with Spielberg, and he's talking about the dynamic work of, of Spielberg and going all the way back to Jaws. So can't wait to see that. Also, I read this book, Originals, by Adam Grant. I feel like this is up Dan's wheelhouse. If you haven't read it, I'm sure you've heard of it. Maybe Malcolm Gladwell has a blurb for it, recommending it. Quickly on Adam Grant, I'm yeah. on his monthly newsletter. Read a few of his books. <laughs> monthly news. How's that going? What, what does he give you? Eh, you know, recommendations, articles, that kind of thing. A lot of stuff that he puts out there as well. It's pretty good. All right, pretty good. Um, here's a couple of just blurbs that I find are interesting for people who are cinephiles. This is one part he's talking about um, personality traits. The personality trait most associated with an interest in the arts is called openness, the tendency to seek out novelty and variety in intellectual, aesthetic, and emotional pursuits. When psychologist Robert McRae analyzed four dozen questions across 51 different cultures, one of the best indicators of openness was agreeing with the statement, sometimes when I am reading poetry or looking at a work of art, I feel a chill or wave of excitement. Around the world, from the U.S., Japan, and Brazil to Norway, the most open-minded people experience aesthetic chills, shivers, and goosebumps when appreciating art or hearing beautiful music. I acquired a strong taste for music, Charles Darwin once wrote, so that when listening to an anthem, my backbone would sometimes shiver. Not to put too fine a point of it, but with a film that I love, that's exactly how I feel. So it's good to know that there's actually some uh, psychological basis for this. You, now you understand when someone says, I got chills down my spine. Later on, this is an important note, I think, for filmmakers. As iconic filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola observed, the way to come to power is not always to merely challenge the establishment, but first make a place in it and then challenge and double-cross the establishment. you got to get in there and then show people what you're supposed to do, which is an interesting philosophy. And both of those points with regards to openness and challenging the establishment, I think, correlate to one of the movies we're going to talk about. Uh, one of the things that I, I like here, too, this is for anybody who always feels like maybe they're not accomplishing their best work or should have already done this. And I used to feel like this. I used to always think Orson Welles did Citizen Kane when he was 25. And I'm 25, and I'm worthless here watching uh, Blue Jays games on my <laughs> TV. And this is why it's important. In film for every Orson Welles, whose masterpiece, Citizen Kane, was his very first feature film at age 25, there is an Alfred Hitchcock 
who made his three most popular films three decades into his career. At ages 59, Vertigo, 60, North by Northwest, and 61, Psycho. In poetry for every E.E. Cummings, who penned his first influential poem at 22, and more than half of his best work before turning 40, there is a Robert Frost, who wrote 92% of his most reprinted poems after 40. What explains these dramatically different life cycles of creativity? Why do some peak early and others bloom late? So it's an interesting book. Check out Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World by Adam Grant. I just thought those movie blurbs would be interesting. Now, particularly those first two excerpts I mentioned, one about challenging the establishment, becoming a part of it, and the other part, openness, it relates to Darren Aronofsky and the film Mother. Because I think only great filmmakers can really fail miserably. And there's no getting around it. This is an absolute disappointment from a terrific filmmaker. There's not many directors, Dan. If you tell me he directed it, I'm going to go see it. You, Darren Aronofsky, I'm in. And someone says, well, why? I'm like, you got to give me three great films. He's made three great films. The Wrestler, uh, Black Swan, Requiem for a Dream. So if you, give me, you, give me, you give me three greats, I'm in. Noah, it was all right. It wasn't great. The, the Talking Rocks, I could have done without, but I enjoyed Russell Crowe. I thought it was different what he was trying, so let's go see Mother. So I, I go in blind, which is how all of you should go see this movie. You should not know anything about it. If it's too late, well, then what can you do? And by the way, I'm going to get plenty of spoiler alert. I, I want to tell Dan what it's about because, go ahead. And just for the record, Jennifer Lawrence, who stars in the film, says you should not go in blind. You should read up on it before you see it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because I went in blind and the first hour is suspenseful and chilling. And I like where he's, you know, has shades of black swan. And I, I read a lot of people saying, oh, it's like Rosemary's Baby. And I don't necessarily like that connection i saw somebody tweet anybody who says mother is like rosemary's baby has not seen rosemary's baby which i thought was quite funny it's like if you just know it's a horror movie and it's polanski and there's a bunch of people stuck in a hotel i guess it's kind of like that um but i guess there were some shades of it but the first hour again it's bardem and lawrence and they're married and ed harris comes to their house and he needs some help and then michelle pfeiffer shows up and that's his wife and away we go from there And there's lots of creaks and sounds and psychological nuance and it feels a little bit like black swan and then it just starts to go bonkers. And, and I treat this podcast as just an opportunity for me to tell my friend Dan about a movie I saw. So this is the spoiler alert. I'm giving all you 10 seconds right now. Go ahead. Pause the podcast. You want to skip ahead five minutes? You want to just stop listening altogether? We already got the downloads. So we appreciate it. Because I want to just tell Dan what happens. And if you want to see the movie, then don't listen to this. Go ahead. Go further. If you want to know what the movie's about, as Jennifer Lawrence said, and I'll be honest, if I know what the movie's about, it would have helped me immeasurably. But I don't believe so. I don't think that a filmmaker should... That's awfully arrogant to expect your audience to have to know something about the movie. I go into a theater. I want to see the movie. It should be self-contained. I shouldn't, as I did, immediately run it afterwards, Google, and go, okay, what the hell was this about? Oh, that's what the movie's about? Oh, okay, I guess that makes sense now. But I wish I'd known that before. But I shouldn't have to know that before. That's enough spoiler alert time. Here's what it is. What is Mother about? And here's how wrong I was. I, I go out and I said, wow. That's an awfully, I didn't like it, but I said, wow, that's an awfully self-lacerating piece of work. This is Aronofsky's commentary on directors and how they manipulate women. And Javier Bardem is like this director. He is like Aronofsky's proxy. And the, he's showing an awfully uh, ruthless, cynical side of man, the way that they torture women, the way Jennifer Lawrence is tortured, and, and it's never enough. And he's this ultimate narcissist who constantly wants love and feeding. And I said, it's a pretty bold stroke by Aronofsky to make this kind of movie. That's awfully self-lacerating. I didn't like it, but it's an interesting commentary. But that's not what it's about. <laughs> what it's about is this, maybe on some level. I mean, all great art is open to interpretation, but that's actually not what it's about. Because as soon as you Google Aronofsky, you got it. Why is it called Mother? Because she's representing Mother Nature. 
and Bardem is representing God. So after the first hour, you would not have known this, obviously. Even later on, you would have known this. But here's how loopy it gets, Dan. At one point, she starts to get, like, there's people that keep coming to the house. And it's like they're, they're just fans of his work because Bardem is this poet. And he will not let them go. Like, he just keeps saying, no, no, I need them here. I need them here. And so that's why I thought he was a narcissist. I'm like, no, he's just arrogant. But it's Aronofsky's commentary that God just always wants and wants and wants from all his people. He wants to be loved, worshipped, et cetera, but there's never any give back in return. It gets so bizarre, he starts taking on literally 20th century history. These people start coming in. They will not leave the house. They start stealing things. They're looting. And for yourself, then, maybe having grown up Catholic, you would definitely have recognized one of the parallels. Obviously, I'm familiar with the Old Testament. For example, Ed Harris, when he comes in, at one point, he's throwing up, and Jennifer Lawrence sees he has a rib injury. Now, in retrospect, he's representing Adam, Adam's rib. Got it. Obviously, in the movie, I'm like, why, why is he drunk? I don't get it. And you go from there. But, like, some of this New Testament stuff, they go in the house. They start raiding it. They're looting it. There's a couple of people who keep jumping on this sink. And Jennifer Lawrence is like, stop. Touching. Now, at this point, it's pandemonium. People are robbing things. They're stealing. She's like, stop, stop. Why won't you tell them to leave? And Bardem will not let them leave. And at one point, they're jumping on a sink. And she goes, stop. Like, little kids jumping on a sink. She goes, stop. The sink goes in, and that's representing of the flood. I was like, all right, interesting. Okay, like, again, it's it's heavily symbolic. And if I had known this, I'm like, all right, well, I see where he's going. He lines it up. Later on, she gets so incensed, she grabs like an oil projector, whatever. I don't even know the word for it. Canister, I suppose. And she goes downstairs by the furnace and blows up the entire house. And that's representative of fossil fuels and how we're all killing ourselves with fossil fuels. And that is ruining the environment because, of course, she's Mother Nature. Now, if Aronofsky is a huge environmentalist, and he's a huge atheist, and all that is fine, and he's clearly using this film for his, his pet causes, but it is just so overwhelmingly self-indulgent, and it's just so obscure that if you don't know that, you're just completely confused and you find it ludicrous. Now that I do know that, going back, I'd say, okay, well, at least it now makes sense, but that doesn't mean I was entertained by it or moved by it. I don't know. Like, I just think it's an awfully risky strategy to either expect your audience to pick out what it was, which I was not capable of doing, or to have expected them to heard about it and then go see it. Yeah. In retrospect, it kind of sounds like it makes sense to you, though. Right. So had you known this going in, maybe you would have been, oh, I get it, I see, although he's kind of that's kind of leading the jury, so to speak. Right. So what percentage of the audience do you think doesn't know what it's about and actually gets it? I'm glad you asked that, because the vast majority, there's something called Cinema Score. Cinema Score is basically what audience, this is not just a rating of the movie. It's a rating of the movie in relation to what you thought it was about. So everybody like you or me who saw the trailer thought, psychological thriller, Black Swan, creepy, Michelle Pfeiffer's supposed to be great, can't wait. And then you see the movie and you go, wait, it's a commentary on biblical times and environmentalism? Mother on Cinema Score got an F. <laughs> People... That doesn't mean necessarily that people hated this movie. It means if you were expecting something and didn't get it, you hated this movie. This did not line up with your expectations whatsoever. I think you've explained everything <laughs> except I've read a few reviews on except the end. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Here's another point, chance. Yeah. Hit that 15 seconds forward. <laughs> she dies, and then another mother shows up, correct? And the house right. is back to normal. What, right. what, what the hell is that? He, he, he takes something out of her, which is like this jewel that he loves. I'm like, okay. And then you're right. And then then another mother, the last shot, it's just this mother comes. I'm like, okay. So I guess it's how God creates different creatures. And whenever humans die, whenever we kill ourselves because of what we're doing to the environment, that will be the next species that's going to inhabit the earth. 
even though it looks exactly like a human being. Like, it just looks like another girl. looks kind of like Jennifer Lawrence. By the way, for those that really hated the movie, like, some of these reviews are awfully entertaining. They're mentioning, like, how misanthropic it is. Like, th- there are scenes that are just jarring what's happening. And even for the cast, I'm wondering, like, Michelle Pfeiffer said when she read the script, she, she didn't know what the heck it was about. But she goes, all right, I like Aronofsky. Let's try something different and go from there. And... I had this bizarre tweet. Someone said to me, well, you've got to... I, by the way, I gave it one and a half Maple Leafs. Let's make it clear. I did not like the movie. Uh, but I appreciate the fact it's gutsy and it's different. And listen, in a summer where we got Pirates of the Caribbean 5 and Guardians of the Galaxy 2, I'll take Mother. Like, I'm glad there's a studio that gave Aronofsky this money to do it. But I also agree that the studio probably just said, all right, he's this auteur. He's this visionary. This is going to work. And that is not the case. Mother opened at $7.5 million, Huge disappointment this past week and $3 million. You got Jennifer Lawrence, you made $10 million for two weeks, and it is blowing you to smithereens? Like, that, that's a massive disappointment. So I would say, as a fan of cinema, this should probably be upsetting because clearly a studio gave Aronofsky a lot of money to do something different, and it failed miserably. And it got 68% rotten to it, so that's good. But you, a movie like this, you got to have 85, 90. You've got to have everybody on board. And the people that hate it are like, worst movie of the year. The people that love it appreciate its audacity and the fact it's different. And the person who tweeted me said, well, you got to give it more than one and a half Maple Leafs, which is my review. Look at the sound design. Look at the production. And somebody else did the work for me. They responded on my behalf. He goes, nobody goes to see a movie for production design and sound, okay? It's got to be the story. If the story's stupid, it doesn't work for you, then forget it. No, but how great were the performances? Again, I, I, it doesn't matter how good the actors are. Of course, they're good actors. Yeah, like Jennifer Lawrence, I felt sympathy for her. Like there's one scene, she's getting trampled on and beaten up. And here's the craziest part of the movie. So she gets pregnant because they're having this big fight. She goes, all you do is you take, you take, you take. You know, you're, you're selfish. And she gets pregnant. They have the baby. And then all the people are downstairs. Like, there's hundreds of people invading their house, like, like just going crazy. And he wants to take the baby to give them to everybody. So now, okay, baby Jesus, here we go. But she, but, but she will not do it. She's just holding the baby, breastfeeding. But him just sitting there staring at her. And then she falls asleep. He grabs the baby. She's like, No! He takes me, the baby starts body surfing. I'm not exaggerating this. He's body surfing with all the people. All the people want to touch the baby, and you hear a crack. You're like, <gasps> baby's dead. People are now ripping apart the baby, and they're now eating the baby. And somebody tweeted to me, were like, is it true there's a scene where a baby gets eaten? I'm like, well, yeah, it's meant to be communion, obviously symbolic. I was like, again, going back, I'm like, all right, why was there a baby being eaten? I'm like, okay, body of Christ. So the baby was Jesus. Okay. That's right. all right. I'm... <laughs> Definitively not seeing this movie. <laughs> yeah, on, on top of everything, like it was incredibly blasphemous. Like I'm looking at people going, "Oh my, like what? Like age is what is going on? Right now? Babies being eaten in this movie? Like, oy, who wants to watch this kind of stuff?" So it was, it was a bold risk for our man Aronofsky. But Dan, you had said to me before I seeing it, you go, "I've heard a bit about it. I don't think I want to see it." So did you know any of this stuff? I didn't know any of the huge. Yeah subplots or deeper gotcha. meanings i didn't know any of that i have since read up on it yeah. and broadly speaking that part of it sounds interesting but right. then if you hear the actual plot points and what they do what he does to represent things <laughs> it's no nothing yes so our, our friend saruti was like well i was raised roman catholic so i'm kind of interested to see how it lines up and i said no no listen it's all interesting in theory but i'm telling you it's not a good movie you're not going to sit there and go yeah this is fascinating it will line up with certain text in the bible but that doesn't mean it's worthy of watching so Anyways, welcome back to all those who just flew through the podcast who want to hear something else. Mother, I'm giving one and a half Maple Leafs. I'm avoiding it. A movie I am recommending is Stronger. And this surprised me because I said, all right, um, it's not that the story of Jeff Bobin, who lost his legs in the Boston Marathon bombing, isn't important or compelling. But to be perfectly blunt, we've seen a lot of stories about inspirational 
movies, and I figure this one's probably going to be rather cliched, and it'll be well done, but but heavy-handed and all the rest of it. But instead, I was pleasantly surprised, and there's two people, to, there's three people to thank for that. One is Jake Gyllenhaal, who gives an excellent performance and underplays it, very sensitive. And two is Tatiana Maslany, who plays his girlfriend, who I don't know her work, but people who watch a lot of TV tell me she's great in Orphan Black, and she plays his girlfriend, who conveys all the requisite emotions you'd expect of somebody who's who's thrust into the role of caregiver, rather reluctantly so. And the third person is David Gordon Green, and that's the director of the movie Stronger. David Gordon Green, to me, is fascinating. Whereas a guy like Aronofsky, who's made great movies and now, unfortunately, has made a dud, but at least tried hard, David Gordon Green came out of the box with this incredible movie called George Washington. Those who know their indie movies have seen it. He says, director from North Carolina. I remember watching George Washington, and it was one of the most beautiful movies I'd seen in the last 20 years. Tim Orr is a cinematographer. It's about a group of these poor black kids growing up in Carolina. It's like a poem. Beautiful. And I said, I can't wait to see what else this guy's going to make. All the Real Girls is his second movie. Sweet, romantic story. Well done. Okay. Since then, though, he's been all over the map. It's almost like he's this director who had these indie roots and then just all of a sudden got hooked up with gross-out comedies. Like, it's so weird. He directed The Sitter with Jonah Hill. It's supposed to be awful. Uh, he did Your Highness with Danny McBride, which is awful. Um, he's done the TV show Vice Principals with Danny McBride, which I've seen a couple. It isn't very funny. So it's all, I, I just I would love to meet David Gordon Green. I'm like, how did you go from this like indie director, this guy who just made these gross-out comedies? But now he's gone back to something that I think is, is his forte, which is a sensitive, character-driven story. And what the movie does really effectively is it shows how people who are heroes have no desire to be heroes. Jeff Bowman is a guy who works at Costco, uh, you know, working-class Boston, Enough the movie, by the way. Enough with these Boston stereotypes. Endless scenes, guys drinking beer, watching the Red Sox. Come on, hit it harder! But along with that, works at Costco, regular guy, etc. Uh, on again, off again relationship with Tatiana Maslany. She's running in the marathon. He wants to go see her. And then he's near, near the finish line, and the, the bombings happen, and this horrible atrocity, and go from there, and he loses his legs. And the first thing when he wakes up, and he has to write, and his friend starts freaking out, he's awake, he <laughs> He does have a great sense of humor, Jeff Bowman. He writes Lieutenant Dan. Because he goes, the guy tells him, he goes, hey, your legs are gone. He just stares at him. He's like, Lieutenant Dan. He's like, yeah, that, that's, that's what you are now. And he's like, oh, man. And the CGI is really well done. I mean, obviously, they have to recreate the fact that Jeff Bowman does not have anything below his kneecap. So there's a lot of scenes of Gyllenhaal just, just grimacing and agonizing facial expressions as he's, you know, trying to. And it is called acting for a reason. He's going to just do this. So I'm. I'm I'm sure just doing the production of it, it was very challenging for him to try to play a guy who does not have anything below his kneecaps. And there's like some scenes of the surgery and the, the wrapping of bandages. Like, you, I think there's just so much more than that you, you just take for granted. You just figure, all right, he lost his legs, whatever. But that's like, no, no, the taping of it, callousing, blood, moving, taking a bath, going to the bathroom, all these kinds of things. And the movie really shows in depth how challenging that it is, along with the self pity that he feels, along with the fact he's pretty much becomes an alcoholic. He just sits around drinking with his buddies and all the um, emotions that he goes through. There's one scene where he goes to a Bruins game, and I'm sure this happened to Jeff. But, you know, Boston Strong has now become this motto, and he's not revealing his cards, but you can tell he's just not really comfortable the whole situation. And then his girlfriend's there. She's going to put him on the wheelchair. He's going to have the big American anthem and wave the flag, and he just starts getting flashes, and he just looks at her and goes, I can't, I can't do this. Like He almost starts hyperventilating. And it's not that, oh, there's 20,000 people and the lights are swirling. It's just that I'm not comfortable being a hero. Later on, he's in the bar. He's having beers with his buddies, and couple come up, hey, you're Jeff Bowman. He's like, yeah, yeah, how are you? He's like, hey, I just want, can we get a picture? He's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And then they say, hey, man, you're such a hero. Like, way to teach them this terror or something. And he goes, 
Well, I, I don't know if I taught them anything. And his buddy starts laughing. He goes, last time I checked, they won. Like, they blew my legs off, and I'm sitting here in a bar. So I don't, like, I didn't do anything. They're like, no, like, you're a hero. He's like, I, there's nothing heroic about what I did. I just stood at a finish line watching this girl I was dating. I got my legs pulled off. Like, like leave me alone. Like, I don't, I don't want to be a hero. I don't want to be a symbol of this. Oprah's coming. His mom's so excited. He goes, I don't want to talk to Oprah. Like, I no, I'm not doing it. Like, I don't, I don't want to be out there. So I'm sure that a lot of this was based on what actually happened to Jeff Bowman. I've seen Jill and Hall on Kimmel, I think it was, and Jeff was actually there in the audience. He's got a great sense of humor. At one point, like Kimmel asked him, he goes, hey, what did you think of Jill and Hall's performance? He's like, eh, I think Matt Damon would have been better like that. <laughs> it's really funny the way that they've been kind of together out publicizing this movie. But check out Stronger. I think it it, uh, it tugs at the heartstrings but really earns them by the way that it's um, authentic and emotional and really sensitive direction by David Gordon Green. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. Of course, the question becomes award-worthy. Um, I think Gyllenhaal and Maslany have outside chances at nominations. Go to goldderby.com. If the movie gets enough pub, uh, it's opening right now in smaller theaters, so we'll get some more access. So maybe they have outside chances of nominations. And by the way, speaking of Gold Derby, hope everybody enjoyed the Emmys. I finished tied for second on Gold Derby among the TV experts. There was a four-way tie for first, and I believe a four-way tie for second. So I got like 19 of 24 categories. So you finished fifth. Yeah, I guess I finished fifth out of like 20 experts. But... It should be noted, it was a fairly predictable Emmys. Like, Veep won again, Julia Louis-Dreyfus won again, Handmaid's Crown won Best Show, Best Drama, which I heard a lot about. Handmaid's Hulu. Tale, Handmaid's right? Tale, excuse me. Sorry, Handmaid's Tale. With... You're the expert, too, right? <laughs> yeah, that's why I finished fifth. Uh, Elizabeth Moss was in Mad Men. I was most thrilled Riz Ahmed won for the night of. Dan and I really liked that show. Um, I thought Colbert did a good job. It was pretty funny. But anyways, goldderby.com, you can check out all the latest with regards to those picks. Quickly, Lego Ninjago, two Maple Leafs, not as good as the other Lego movies. Lego Batman's a tour de force compared to this one. Predictable. At this point, the uh, the novelty is worn off. It doesn't have any of the irresistible wit or charm of the previous two Lego movies. But I did like the father and son story. I'm always a sucker for a nice father and son story, so it's sweet. So uh, dads and moms looking to catch a nap, tape your kids. Kids will enjoy it. You'll get through it. Lego Ninjago movie, two Maple Leafs. Now the moment, the moment you've been waiting for. One of my favorite interviews so far on Cinephile. Dan is going to play this for you just to show you how difficult this was to try to get Richard Lewis to pay attention. He just, he, he just, he just goes. Like the mic's on, he goes. You cannot say, all right, Richard, wait for a second, three, two, one, as you'll take a listen to right now. All right, we're going to knock this out now. We're going to go all over the place. Three, two. You're listening to Cinephile. I know, but that's no. what I do. I am all over the no, but, place. No, but I like, I like Don't it. Don't try to change who I am. How dare you? You're listening. What if I told you to do your entire thing, uh, change, uh, bring your studio to North Korea? <laughs> okay, you're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Burke movie podcast. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. The new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm premieres October 1st, the ninth season. And, of course, he's still doing stand-up, RichardLewisOnline.com. Richard, I'm a huge fan. we got to start with this. Me and my cousins went and saw you a few years ago. You were in Toronto, my hometown. You were playing uh, Just for Laughs or Roy Thompson Hall. And your best bit was about how, now at an advanced age, your testicles have sagged so much that when your doctor gives you a rectal exam, he he takes a running start to give you a colonoscopy. I just want to know, is that still the case? No, it's not the case because my testicles are missing. <laughs> they were rolling down a hill a week ago, as long as you're going to ask this disgusting question. So now I just have something without, there's no like bookends anymore. 
sad. My wife has left me. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. That's I'm in, a, I'm in a clinic now at uh, UCLA, and at Cedars-Sinai, they're trying to glue something back with paper mache. Are you happy? I'm sorry. You happy it was, you it was such this? a great bit. I'm t- it killed, Richard. It killed. I just, I had to follow up. I'm sorry. I don't even remember doing those shows. Uh, was I in? Oh, I was. I, I did. Oh, was I there with? Uh, I was in Toronto, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. You were great. We were like, we got to go see Richard Lewis. How many more opportunities are there to see Richard Lewis? And you were fabulous. You? How about me? I'm, I'm seventy. <laughs> I could drop that on this phone call. <laughs> I can't believe I'm seventy. You know, I've been doing this for forty-nine years. I'm really ecstatic about being on Curb. You know, Curb's been on for seventeen years, other than the five-year hiatus that selfish bastard took. <laughs> but Larry David's a buddy of mine. For you know, we were born in the same hospital. I just mentioned on another show. So what's the difference? Right, but, you're, uh, no, you're on the but, Dan Lebetard show. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, who cares about him? He's, he's, a, he's a jerk. <laughs> Listen, I, but I want to talk more about. He the puts sta- me down. He calls me his nemesis. I'm no, I'm no nemesis. <laughs> I, I, I like I like doing his show, and he and he asked his he asked his fans to vote if they if they dislike me. Yeah, no, that, what's wrong with him? I know you can't take it personally. It's it's always fun. You, you can't uh, you can't take it personally. But uh, listen, your stand up, Richard. I want to. No, of course. Go on. Mel Brooks put it best when he said, "Richard Lewis may just be the Franz Kafka of modern comedy." New York Times said this renowned comedian, often considered to be the heir to Lenny Bruce, is a master of long-form storytelling who turns his endless neurotic energy into brilliant comedy. I think this is true of more than anyone I could think of, Richard. Your comedy is therapy, and you're one of my favorites. You, Gary Shandling, Richard Pryor, because you guys put it all out there. There's nothing to hide when when you're performing. At what point did you find that voice? Did you realize you could channel all this pain into humor be the Prince of Pain? I was about five hours old. (laughs) <laughs> and I was being put down by my family, and I went, I'm going to tell everybody the truth, otherwise it's pointless. And even though I was gurgling and sucking on one of those nipples, not my mother's, I'm talking those rubber nipples. <laughs> oh, I got and uh, I did a show for a nursery school, and no one understood what I was talking about because I was sucking on a nipple. They knew that I, here's the deal, honestly, no, no, crap here i just felt that if i was i i knew who were the great who the greats were prior and, and carlin and, and lenny and these guys and they told the truth about how they felt about life and when i was a young kid listening to them i said listen if i can't tell the truth about how i feel what's the point of being a comedian you know i'm not i'm not putting myself with those guys they're mount rushmore but i'm just saying when I go on stage and tell the truth, I feel less alone. And and by the way, most people have the same problems anyway. They all do. And uh, hopefully, uh, like I mentioned an hour, half hour ago, uh, I will. Curb does start soon, and I am be performing through January. And uh, if we can just get these gigs in before we bomb North Korea, <laughs> then I can, you know, have some more money for my wife. <laughs> RichardLewisOnline.com, by the way, you can follow all those uh, stand-ups. No, nah, you don't have to go <laughs> online. The people know where I When I go to a city, I advertise it. You know, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I'm going to be doing a, a casino in Florida with uh, with Artie, Artie Lang, who's a buddy of mine. We're both recovering drug addicts, and, you know, in <laughs> Vegas, it's like a 50 to, you put, if you put five hours down that we finish the show alive, you can win over three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I love Artie Lang's book, but Richard, your book is great. The other Great Depression. No, Artie Lang's book was much more real. You know, I, I, he to told me, he, I liked Artie's book. Artie's a brilliant, brilliant guy. 
you know, he, I love him. He's a sweetheart. He's an addict. Addict. You know, you always feel bad for. Now you don't have to be a celebrity to be an, a drug addict. I know a lot of plumbers. I know a few badminton professionals. Yeah, they're all drug addicts, you know. So the truth is, but he is a brilliant guy, and I just pray for the guy. You know, yeah. I'm, you know, I just, you know, and I'm, you know, he saw me at Carnegie Hall 30 years ago, and that's when he told me he decided to become a comic. So. You know, he's really excited about you know working with me, and I'm excited about working with him. I think he's magnificent. I think, but you, again, yeah. we're both drug addicts, and Vegas <laughs> is having a blast. You know, it's even off the board on one of the hotels. I think it's the Caesars. Uh, they don't even have us finishing the show. No, that's, that's horrible. No, it's horrible. But listen, 23 years in recovery, and I think I wish you had done more of this. This is just a fan talking, Richard. But that movie, Drunks, I thought was terrific because it you was. You saw Drunks? Yeah, wow, I thought, thank you. I thought you were great in it because, and I think you could do more dramatic roles. You're obviously hysterical, and I know stand up and curb, you know, occupy so much of your time, but I think you would be a great dramatic actor, and you proved yeah. that in Drunks because you had such uh, emotion and authenticity in that role. Well, thank you very much. It's a it's a great move. It's a, it's it's on Amazon and people. It's a there's a, a I was just proud that I got the role. I mean, I went up against every big actor in Hollywood practically, you know. And here's the deal: I'm a comedian first, you know. I'm very, you know. People know Richard Lewis, and I remember people, you know, saying, "Oh, that he's he's a good actor, but he's such a neurotic maniac." You know, you know, I wasn't going to play uh, Daniel Day Lewis's role in Abraham Lincoln. They wouldn't have put me in there. <laughs> that you would know, have been great. Score and uh, how many years? What score mean again? <laughs> a very self-loathing Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah, Richard. You know, and then Emily. I'm going to put you back into the. I'm going to put you back into the into the mental hospital if you don't let me sleep with that guy. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked out. I would have done, and I would have ad lib. You can't ad lib when you're Abe Lincoln. No, that's a you fair know, point. But I appreciate what you're saying. I've done some dramatic stuff on, but did they, I, I've been I've been stereotyped and pigeonholed and whatever the word is, I forget. I'm old now, but I mean the truth of the matter is, I'm just proud that I've been a comic for almost a half a century, and uh, and I'm I've never felt stronger on stage. And um, I was on I I did uh, uh, Kimmel the other night, and I had a blast, and. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm still doing it. You know, that's all that matters. It's, it's a journey. You know, people, these, you know, younger people, and I hate to, you know, you, you start judging when you get older, but they get so impatient. And I go, wait, man, I was 21, 22. Every show, some of the shows I played, gymnasiums, I played, you know, I played, uh, you know, you name it, Chinese restaurants. You just got to do it every, work on your craft and hold for a break. And, you know, David Letterman gave me my first break, and then I got a series with Jamie Lee Curtis, and then Larry David, 17 years ago, said, you want to play yourself? And I said, yes, even though I don't know who I am yet. I'll, you'll help me figure that out. I'll have to call you privately. You, Mel Brooks, you're with Mel Brooks, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, another comic great. Well, that was the reason about the testicles, as long as you want to bring the <laughs> testicles up. I had to wear tights all summer, and uh, when I finally came out of my costume, uh, I shrieked louder than any person, like the scream, that painting, because everything was flattened like a pancake, and uh, and I lost a couple of girlfriends at the time, but then I had to go to Germany. There was a mad doctor who helped, uh, helped blow things up again. 
This is a good conversation. This is a conversation that Artie Lang and I are going to have when they pull us off the stage when we uh, when we start using drugs during the no, show. No, that's not going to happen. But what is going to happen is I want to ask you, for listen, 47 years in show business, I have been a yeah. broadcaster 15 years and seven and a half years at ESPN, and there's no bigger uh, highlight than when I got to fill in for your friend, Keith Olbermann, because I adore Keith. I think he is... The Lenny Bruce, the George Carlin, you name it, of sports You know, you nailed it. I, listen, I know him for over 30 years. He's he's clearly one of the smartest guys I've ever known. He's a sports junkie. He loves, he's passionate about sports. He's obviously passionate about politics. But when you just talk about his, his, his career in sports, he changed the way that things were, he changed the way things were done. He didn't take things that seriously. And, you know, look, someone has to come first, and I think he's one of the – he's truly an original, and uh, and I love the guy. He's been really great to me. Yeah, how did you first become friends, Richard, you and Keith? Well, me, him, and Artie Lang were going down to Chinatown in L.A. <laughs> looking for some drugs. <laughs> Olbermann, he seems like oh, a straight no, arrow. No, I'm joking. I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you meant uh, – I thought, I thought you were talking about Keith Richards, else. maybe. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 not Keith. No, no. I met – Keith was on the local news here in Los Angeles, and he used to have a mustache, and I ran into him. I said, you, you know, you look like – you talk like Groucho Marx on, this, on the news because he was so funny. And then uh, we became best friends, and then uh, he introduced me to Casas about 30 years ago. I had dinner with Casas. Casas also admires him. And, uh, you know, they're both, you know, look, I don't mean to take you out of the conversation, but, you know, these two guys, you know, you, you can ask them about any any subject and you feel intimidated, you know. I say, can we just keep it to, like, uh, Dick, Tom, Dick, and Jane? Do we have to talk about, uh, you know, uh, nuclear warfare? And, uh, and he knows he can – these guys can segue from the uh, from the Dodgers panicking now mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, you know, to uh, World War Three. It's unbelievable. These guys, uh, you know, they're very knowledgeable cats. They really – but they love sports so much. It's just – and so do you, no, I, you know, and, uh, you know, you're very passionate. That's why I'm a big fan of yours, too, because you could you could tell when people are just going just going by the numbers and you're not. And those guys and, you know, you, you know, you, you grew up on them like uh, and uh, you learn from the best. No, as far that, as I'm concerned. No, that's absolutely right. Richard Lewis, the new season of Kirby Enthusiasm season nine uh, is coming out October 1st. I, I and did... I kick Larry's ass in a way that is shocking. <laughs> That's a good it's tease. Shocking. Down goes David. Down goes David. <laughs> I am not taking any more of his intellectual crap anymore. I'm going to be. Uh, you'll see. No, everybody has a favorite episode, Richard. Like, I'm partial to Palestinian chicken. But well, I, it's probably the greatest episode <laughs> I've ever seen on television. It's the darkest, most fearless. Absolutely. We, we can curse because this is a podcast and so we'll bleep this. But how about that line? I'm going to the Jew out of you. Like, that's unbelievable. It was it was un unbelievable. My, my, one of my one of my favorite episodes was uh, the Benadryl brownie uh, when I had to take this woman whose head blew up into the Frankenstein and helping the blind man move his furniture. That to me was I... it was unbelievable. And Larry and I we fight a lot. We we have a love hate relationship, and we were running to this jewelry store. And we dove at each other, and I and I broke his glasses and sprained his wrist, and it was almost a full blown fight. But uh, 
But it's very real. My wife says, how did the show go? I said, what do you mean, how did it go? I'm playing me. He's playing him. We had the same fight we had the other night at dinner. Uh, it's not acting. I don't know. I'm never going to get an Emmy. I couldn't care. I, I, you know, as long as I beat him in the, in the, you know, it's all ad lib. So I just try to out ad lib him. Right. But it's very difficult because he's so smart. But uh, this season, I think I, uh, I win most of the fights, to be honest. You never made me laugh harder on Curb than the argument you're having with Larry, and you said, I want an answer by sundown. And he said, what are you, Gary Cooper? <laughs> what is this I know, high that noon? was one of my – I'm so glad that popped out of my warped brain. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Hey, call me by sundown. <laughs> you know, and he started laughing. But that's the cool thing about the show because we are playing ourselves, so we would laugh, you know. And uh, it's all, it's, it's really a lot of fun being with him and, uh, and I'm excited about the show and, uh, and I'm, and I'm really, I'm really happy to finally be, and I hope I can see you in studio and, and I don't mind coming to New York and doing a, the, the 300 mile round trip <laughs> to Connecticut. Uh, I have a show, let's say I have a show at uh, eight o'clock at Caroline's, which I will be in New York in October and I'll be in Philadelphia at Helium in October too. And uh, so let's say, uh, they say, all right, listen, they're going to pick you up at 2 a.m. You'll be in Connecticut at 6. Mike and Mike. You'll do, 12, you'll do two minutes. You'll get back in the sedan. Then it's, uh, there's a lot of traffic coming into New York. So you'll be, it's about a 500-hour trip. And uh, and then you'll you'll be we'll get you to the show on time. I, I I don't know how people do that. Don't you have to stay overnight when you when you're a guest in in, in Connecticut? I mean, how do you do it? Well, sometimes they have helicopters. I mean, we have we Jeremy Renner was yeah, here. Kobe, Richard, only Kobe has a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, right, Kobe, Kobe has a helicopter as well. But speaking of travel, Kobe I, takes a helicopter to go to go to Whole Foods <laughs> to get fruit. <laughs> We're going to get a crew, Richard, to come see you at Caroline's or in Philly. Me, Greeny, Golick, Levitard will bring the whole crew and come see you, all right? Yeah, I'm in October 13th and 14th. I'm in Caroline's, and then I'm in the week after that. I'm in Philadelphia for four nights. So whatever. You don't have to. I'm just I'm just glad that you're a fan. I'm a big fan of you guys, yeah. and... Uh, and and I'm gonna I'm looking up what Stu Gotts means, and it's, it happens to be anti-Semitic, so don't no, tell no, anybody. No, you're good, but resist. Thank you, Richard. All right, resist is right. Bye. So that was Richard Lewis, manic, entertaining. Make sure you go check him out at Caroline's. If I wasn't working college football, I'd go see him. But that Friday, Saturday, in middle of October, I will be working. But at, uh, he was great, man. Really funny, really entertaining, and hopefully. People do check out the new season of Curb. I can't wait. Been going back and seeing some episodes as well. Actor Showcase. Actor Showcase. Our friend Jeff tweeted. He said, I want it. Dustin Hoffman. I said, all right. You want one of the best. Here we go. Uh, thankfully, Hero did not make the cut, nor did Ishtar. <laughs> Soft spot for Dick Tracy playing Mumbles. Here's the ones that didn't make the cut. Barney's version. He's great as Giamatti's dad. Kramer versus Kramer. Iconic performance. Straw Dogs, awesome. Mathematician, Sam Peckinpah directing. He's got to save his wife. Uh, Lenny, playing the immortal comic. Lenny Bruce, one of Richard Lewis's favorites. And even Sleepers. Sleepers, he's like this Shakespearean character. He comes in, he's this drunk lawyer who's just trying to stay on his feet and try to help out all these guys who are facing these really serious charges in court. But those movies did not make the cut. Number five, Wag the Dog. It's producing. You want me to produce your war? It's a teaser. Oh, it's a teaser. <laughs> He's sending up Robert Evans. Robert Evans is the producer of The Godfather and Chinatown and many major films of the 70s. 
And anybody who knows Robert Evans, when you see the film, you go, oh, my God, that's what Hoffman's doing. Bronze skin, the glasses, the silver hair, the eccentricities. In Barry Levinson's film, which is a spoof, there's nothing funnier than the fact Dustin Hoffman is spoofing this legendary Hollywood producer. Terrific chemistry with Robert De Niro. And just the way that he points out, the, the best bit is how he, producers never get an Oscar. He's like, I don't understand. How come producers don't get it? There's an Oscar for directing, acting. What about producers? Like, well, the best picture, the producer accepts. He's like, no, but there should be a producing award. When it's cooking, it's cooking. One of the many catchphrases from that movie. Number four is Tootsie. If you Google, there's scenes of Dustin Hoffman. He gets really emotional talking about Tootsie. Like, he starts crying because he goes, I realized. He's, he's kind of a crier. We ever seen him in interviews. But he starts crying. He goes, I never realized. People always say it's a comedy because it was never a comedy to me. He goes, because I felt so guilty that I realized that I had treated women the way this guy did. That this woman who's unattractive, who's unappealing, that no one's going to give her the time of the day because of the way she looks. And I felt guilty that I had been that guy who would not give her the time of day. She goes, it was never a comedy to me. That was like a really serious social statement to me about the way we treat women. But I'm like, it is a comedy. It's really funny. One of the best scenes, one of the best lines at the start, they go, geez, because it's just this hideous woman. They go, can you pull back a little bit? He's like, yeah, how about Cleveland? Like, there's, just, there's, there's no way. Like, it's just, what can we do here? Love to see him as Sidney Pollack. Sidney Pollack, because that's, again, Hoffman's this guy. If one take is good enough, I want 50 takes. So he's playing like, uh, what is it in the movie? He plays a potato or something? Ketchup? I can't remember now. Tomato. Tomato. He's playing a tomato. And Hoffman's like, oh, what kind of tomato was that? What kind of motivation was I? So there's, again, different levels to the movie. They're making fun of the fact Hoffman in life is this real perfectionist. And it was always a pain to his directors. And then he's being a pain to a guy who is a director in Sidney Pollack who's playing his agent. Um, but all with that, it's funny. It's really smart. I enjoyed it very much. And, of course, Mrs. Doubtfire later updated it, which is one of Colin Coward's favorite movies. My first day as a woman, already I'm having hot flashes. Number three is Midnight Cowboy. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Of course, that scene, famously improvised, plays Ratso Rizzo, an absolute cellar dweller, uh, hooks up with John Voight, who's this country bumpkin who's going to be a male gigolo. Hoffman's character, you think, is just this despicable rat. I mean, literally, he's Ratso Rizzo. He makes you care for him. And especially the final scene is really powerful. Number two is The Graduate. Hello, darkness, my old friend. One word. Plastics. Playing Benjamin Braddock. He was older than that character, but it was a breakthrough performance for him. And a breakthrough for many actors of that age. Before then, you had to have a certain look. You had to be a a Robert Redford type. But Hoffman proved that just because you're short with a big nose, you're not a Matt in the Idol, doesn't mean you can't be a talented actor. The Graduate came out in late 60s with Mike Nichols, and then that led to the wave of De Niro and Pacino and all these gritty actors in the 70s. So The Graduate is not only a really interesting film, an entertaining movie, a smart movie, a funny movie, a movie that holds up. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. It's also a really important movie within film literature. And number one, 50 minutes to Wapner, Rain Man, playing Raymond Babbitt, autistic, um... Just the scenes of him melting down are just, I mean, it breaks your heart. And I just thought that the way he just completely inhabited the character of Raymond, yet shows his humanity and his soft side, it is really impressive. The best films of Dustin Hoffman, Rain Man, The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, Tootsie, and Wag the Dog. All right, I got a few bones to pick with you, oh, and then a big bone to pick with the movie The Graduate. So oh. we'll, we'll, do the, we'll quickly do the ones you did not mention. Yeah. Uh, you did mention Marathon Man. Yeah, good one. My Father Loves Papillon. I have not yeah, seen it. I know Dustin Hoffman is the main character. Kurt, Steve McQueen. Yeah. yeah. No good? It's okay. I okay, think my father day. loves yeah, it. I, I don't know why I've never seen it. And then Hook. No, Hook is not a very good movie. You hate Hook. Yeah, yeah. He's the best part of Hook, but the movie's terrible. Okay, well, we're doing his best roles. Well, he's fine in it, but he's, he's done better than Hook. Okay. So The Graduate. <laughs> oh, God. 
I think it is the most unrealistic ending of all time. And people always go to the ending. They're in the right. back of the bus. It's yeah. this adorable thing. She leaves the wedding. Spoiler alert. Whatever. Yeah. She picks it. There is no woman on the face of the earth that is going to leave her wedding to run off with some guy that she knows has had sex with her mother. Oh, jeez. Like, get out of here. That That would never happen. It's bothered me from the first time I saw it, and everyone says, oh, it's such a great movie. Yeah. That would never happen. It's an excellent point you make. I wish we could meet Dustin Hoffman. You could put that point to him. Be like, what? Well, you've told me he's a real, like, on set, he kind of rankles people that he works oh, with. You yeah. told me the Meryl Streep oh, thing he did on Kramer versus Kramer, which I don't think we should ever talk about again because that's horrible. But, a, quick, yeah. a quick revisitation. There's one scene where he's going to get under Meryl Streep's skin. And he started razzing her and teasing her about John Cazale's death. She had was that was her boyfriend before he passed. Yes, Fredo Corleone and Meryl Streep had been dating for a while. And just because he wanted to get maximum fury out of her, he started teasing her about Cazale's death. And she could not have been more furious. And he's like, "Well, that's what we need to get from her. So let's just do it." I mean, this, this is a guy who will take chances. That's going above and beyond. Dan Stans doesn't appreciate the devotion to craft from Dustin Hoffman, and he doesn't like the graduate either. I love it. Actor Showcase from Dustin Hoffman. Streaming suggestions. On Netflix, make sure you check out Eyes Wide Shut. Speaking of polarizing and divisive, there are people who love that movie. There are people who hate that movie. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I'm not a Tom Cruise fan, which I've discussed on other platforms, but I did thought he was decent in the fact that he shows how this guy just, he's so repressed, like he just can't act out his fantasies. The, the scene where he goes to the house, remove your clothes. If not, we'll remove them for you. What is the secret word? Uh, I don't know. <gasps> Fidelio. Eyes wide shut, Stanley Kubrick. Like I said, polarizing. Speaking of, as, as a cinephile, I believe it is one's interest to always revisit other films or to uh, make one's catalog as deep as possible. I have Stanley Kubrick's, all of his movies in like one box set. I've never seen Barry Lyndon. And I know I'm going to hate it. So I popped it in last week. I got through 30 minutes. Could not be more boring. Marty always raves, oh, the lighting in Barry Lyndon. You know someone's a real movie geek. They go, hey, how about the lighting in Barry Lyndon? You go, you know what? Tell me the story of Barry Lyndon. Could not be more slow, just leaden. Story. Like, nobody cares. This costume drama. <laughs> Seriously, you want something painful? Pop in Barry Lyndon sometime. Maybe I'll auction off my copy. I also recommend, because we don't recommend enough comedies, Talladega Nights, Ballad of Ricky Bobby is on Netflix. Camera zooms in on him. Please be 18. A lot of great lines from Will Ferrell. I'm not a Will Ferrell by any means. A hater by any means. I, I quite like him, and I like his movies. Of course, Anchorman. Old School is great. Talladega Nights, Ballad of Ricky Bobby, I think is pretty funny. I give it three Maple Leafs. It's on Netflix. Amazon Prime, how about this? Let's go in a different direction. Let's give it some love to female protagonists. Election, starring Reese Witherspoon. Very funny. Alexander Payne, satire. Matthew Broderick as well. Margot at the Wedding, Jonathan Demme directed, Your Girl Hathaway, and Ghost World with Thora Birch. Terry Zweigoff directed. I love Zweigoff because he did the documentary Crumb, which I've gone on record as saying is my favorite documentary of all time. Ghost World is a fiction movie that he did uh, about adolescence. It's funny, quirky, goofy. Steve Buscemi's in it. Check out Ghost World. And HBO Now, Master and Commander, Russell Crowe movie that I enjoyed. If you love uh, uh, nautical disasters and those stories of that ilk, you'll enjoy it. Monsters Ball, one word, unrated. The unrated version of Monsters Ball. You're going to see a lot of people on HBO now this month. And also, stuck on you. Speaking of comedies, I like the Farrelly Brothers. 
Uh, playing twins, Greg Kinnear and Matt Damon, Eva Mendez, bringing it. We wish we had an unrated version of Stuck on You, but I thought it was funny as well. Master Commander, Monsters Ball, unrated and Stuck on You. As you heard recently on Cinephile, I raved about the documentary score, and now pleasantly, the writer and director of that documentary, Matt Schrader, joins us now on Cinephile. Matt, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I love this connection. Claire Atkins, my fabulous producer who works with me on college football and college basketball, when she saw the tweet that I'd seen score, she goes, oh, I know, Matt, we went to USC together. And so she is giving me the first question, which is this. You were working. You had a regular job, I think insurance, and then you left it to go pursue this documentary, which, as Claire tells me, was awfully risky. Can you give me the backstory to this, Matt? How did this project come together? Yeah, I mean, I was actually it, – it, it wasn't insurance. I was actually in journalism, uh, in a, kind of a different field of journalism, investigative uh, journalism. So I was doing a lot of, you know, some of the fun kind of journalistic stuff, you know, doing some undercover stuff and – some confrontations, I think, mostly for local news. And uh, and this idea was kind of popping around about a documentary on film composers. And, and I kept wondering why this documentary hadn't been made. You know, I've always had a huge interest in it. And uh, there came a point where, you know, I, I called a couple buddies and they uh, they were kind of interested in the idea, too. I said, well, it's, let's let's give it a few months and take a leap and see if we get somewhere. So I left my job. Um, and uh, and just you know finance the start of uh, what ended up becoming the film on on my own savings, um, which wasn't much starting out, and uh, and we you know we gained a little momentum. So it was a really kind of cool. It's been a really cool jump for us, uh, but it, it did involve a leap right at the start for sure. I have to put on my investigative journalism hat, Matt, and ask and probe a little bit. How much money was this? Because I want people to realize the risk you were taking when you're dipping in your own money here. Well, I mean, I I ended up spending about eleven thousand dollars on um, just on some different equipment that we needed to kind of shoot the basics of this stuff. It wasn't enough to do the whole film. Right. Luckily, we were able to then put together a couple crowdfunding campaigns, and people all over the world started giving us, you know, twenty five bucks here and there, or some some people even more than that, and uh, that really helped us finish the film. Uh, it couldn't have been done without kind of either of those components. So. It was really cool because we ended up having people from, you know, 43 or I forget, 48 different countries around the world that uh, were actually giving us money before any film existed so that we could finish the film. So it was a, a kind of a cool uh, crowdfunded support kind of a thing. Yeah, that is very cool. I love the fact that it came together and I hope it's as as uh, successful commercially as I think it is critically, because obviously it's gotten good reviews. I enjoyed the documentary. And like you said, this is a part of filmmaking for all film lovers. It's something that often goes um, underlooked and underutilized. When you, when you actually start paying attention, which I've now done, Matt, since seeing your documentary, how often there's just little subtle you know, instances of score. I watched the King speech again, and I was just listening to the score more now, realizing how it's impactful. And, and I love that section of the movie where you explain the whole point of motifs and how you'll get that in, let's say, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. What what was it about music and film that captured your attention? Well, I mean, I think uh, I've, I've thought this for a while. The music that we listen to in a in a theater, typically we don't pay attention to, but we feel it. So it's it, we have the same effect as if we're really listening intently to the music. Um, and it kind of it's this subconscious thing that kind of lives underneath the story, and we interpret it as the story. And sometimes 
We even look at the actors that are on the screen and we say, wow, that was a really strong performance. A lot of times it's because of the music. Uh, it's, it's causing us to interpret the movie in different ways. And there's a million different ways that we started to realize, you know, not only that, uh, that kind of the scientists have worked out, because, of course, the art form is studied a lot, but also the composers themselves are keeping certain things in mind. So, you know, the way that you score a, a scene about one thing can direct where your eye looks. It can direct, you know, the intensity that the viewer uh, puts on that scene, on that moment in, in the film. So it, it becomes this huge part of the story. And, uh, and it can be really, really powerful. And uh, when you have all of those things kind of working together, the music can heighten the overall experience of that. And uh, I think there's just some great examples. I mean, in recent years, I, I always really, really liked the way that they, the Dark Knight was put together. The music for the Dark Knight, Hans Zimmer, and and uh, working with Christopher Nolan, and those are two guys who understand the importance of uh, music in a film, and the way that sometimes the music needs to step in for the picture or the actors or whatever it may be, and it makes the the whole experience of sitting in that theater it gives you goosebumps throughout. And, and that's such a cool thing. And, and it's really, it's almost a supernatural experience. Uh, that's really well said. We're talking with Matt Schrader. His new documentary score is available on DirecTV and other outlets. Make sure you check it out. I love the section on John Williams. I, I've joked with my friend, Carrie Chow, that uh, Marconi is actually the goat. As much as I do love Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and The Untouchables is a score I love, and obviously won the Oscar Hateful Eight. There's no denying John Williams is unbelievable, and, you, and your documentary proves that. When you just hear the, the cross-section of even someone like Jurassic Park, which probably gets underrated because everyone knows Star Wars and, and Jaws, and even Schindler's List, you point out this to the sadness of that music and the violins. Were you not able to get John Williams? Because I, I did think it was a strength of the film. You had other composers talking about his music, but how tough was it to get these guys? How tough was it to get, let's say, a Hans Zimmer? Yeah, it was. It was pretty tough. Uh, it took us quite a quite a while to try to, you know, I mean, these are some of the most in demand people, not just in the music world, uh, but in in all of Hollywood. You know, everyone wants in the modern era, everyone wants Hans Zimmer to score their film. Everybody does. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm sure there's a, there's an army of people at, uh, at Hans Zimmer studio that, that filter out, you know, who's, who's serious about things and who isn't. And they get a ton of requests for those kind of things. Um, so it took us a little while, especially going into that and saying, Hey, we're not from the documentary world. We're from the journalism world. And, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this and, you know, we're trying to put together this film People have no reference for kind of what what we've done in the film. It's it's brand new. So it took a lot of trust, I think, on composers part. But, you know, when we explained to them kind of what we were looking to accomplish with the documentary, um, almost everyone was really was really excited about it. And so we ended up getting this really cool charge from all of the composers kind of talking about this, this creative field. And that was a really special thing, but there were a handful of people I, you know, that took quite a while. They're, they're so busy working on all these projects at once. Typically a film composer will do five or six films a year. And some people are also doing TV shows and Bear McCreary, who does the walking dead and agents of shield. And, you know, I, 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 there's a dozen other TV shows that he's done. He's become one of the big film composers right now. And I think we waited 12 months to try to interview him. And there were some that just the timing didn't quite work out, but hmm. we reached out to everybody and tried to, uh, 
include most of those in the film. We ended up with, uh, I think, about 67 interviews in the film itself. Wow. And one guy who I had not heard of, but I love his work, was Tom Holkenborg, who did Mad Max Fury Road. And that's one of my favorite parts is when he starts showing just the pulsating drums and what George Miller wanted and how that fit with the movie. I mean, I love that movie, and now I appreciate that music even more. Oh, it's so powerful. It's it's like it, his music reminds me of that old ad uh, for I think I think it was for Maxell or you know one of the audio you know one of the tape companies of someone just sitting on their uh, on their chair in their living room with in front of a speaker and their hair and everything just blown back by <laughs> by the sound. That's kind of what his score is like, and uh, you know like so many other things. That that's a, that's weird music for a ballet, but when you're talking about Mad Max, it fits so perfectly. It certainly does. Um, when you think about, and I, what I also really appreciate about your documentary is you show the lineage of music. The fact, obviously, it was involved with silent films, but how important um, I think Alex North was with Streetcar Named Desire. Obviously, Bernard Herrmann's music with something like Vertigo. How tough was it to to kind of select which pieces of music would be critical? Because not not to quibble, but I thought, oh, Magnificent Seven, he's going to include that, and you didn't. How tough was that in terms of editing to show which scores were impactful and which ones were not? Yeah, that's that's it's interesting you pull that out. We uh, on on most of the cuts of the film, we actually had the Magnificent Seven there until fairly recently. Uh, we <laughs> we trimmed that out very last minute. Um, you're right. I mean, it's there are so many great examples of film scores. So what we tried to do is go in there and uh, you know try to comb out the scores that were really pivotal, um, so that we can kind of show a little bit of that, like you say, a little bit of a lineage in kind of the evolution of what happens to film. Um, some of the great film scores of all time uh, are, you know, that, that a lot of people, and, and there are hundreds, you know, there's no way any one, you know, hour and a half film can do it justice. But, um, but we wanted to make sure that we included those, those staples that really change things and that people still look to nowadays as you know an inspiration for certain types of things that you do and you know you look at the strange things that jerry goldsmith does for planet of the apes and uh you know all these weird percussive kind of sounds and you know that's a strange thing but then you can look at composers today doing these kind of disjointed films that are are you know they're they're tense and they're awkward and they're weird and uh and you know you can see a little bit of that lineage and them kind of channeling that and the same goes for john williams the same goes for a lot of other classics um even in the electronic world you know people doing things that sound like blade runner or that sound like uh chariots of fire um so it's interesting because there is definitely that evolution taking place and we thought it's kind of cool if we can bring people along so they can see where the, some of those ideas take their inspiration and of course all these composers are taking their cue from the director and i think about one of my favorite scores is taxi driver and bernard herman when he put it together he said that he he kind of thought about it, and him and Scorsese had discussed it, and they said, well, Travis Bickle wouldn't listen to music. So, like, he wouldn't have a soundtrack in his own head, so the idea of that lonely saxophone kind of made sense. How how challenging was it for you when you're composing this documentary? You, you have to, like you say, get all these composers. Were you trying to get the directors as well? Let's say one of the, one of the great clips, of course, is Trent Reznor when he says, um, I got offered to do a social network. And I said, great, I get to work with Fincher, I'm in. And I was like, oh, it's about Facebook? I'm like, oh, God, I couldn't be more bummed out. <laughs> did, did you think right. about trying to get Fincher as well to then discuss why he got Reznor, or you just wanted to focus on the composers? Yeah, I think we did. Uh, you know, there were a handful of directors we reached out to, and we were, you know, lucky enough to have interviewed a couple of them uh, that were uh, 
that were impactful in this arena. But, you know, James Cameron uh, invited us along to his his studio. He has this uh, miniature size, uh, you know, but to scale Titanic in his warehouse and down in, uh, you know, Marina Del Rey or Manhattan Beach somewhere in LA and and we went down there and walked into this warehouse and and there's just this Titanic in this room it's it's pretty impressive even even the miniature scale version of it um but yeah you know a number of directors uh we did reach out to and and uh most of them expressed interest but you know a lot of them because of the nature of of the film industry right now um you know, I don't think there's uh, there's probably two days where Ron Howard, Steven Spielberg, David Fincher aren't out doing, you know, shooting something. So the scheduling is even more difficult for some of those guys than it is for some of the, the leading composers. Yeah, totally makes sense. On a personal level, uh, probably my favorite soundtrack or at least individual score, James Horner for Glory, which is such a great piece of music. Oh, um, yeah. I, I love the one. What about for you? What's What are some personal favorites of yours? Well, I'm a big, I've always really loved what Hans Zimmer does because it's kind of this, it's this modern blend of the orchestra and, and kind of taking, uh, taking the, all of the history and all of the, you know, Hans Zimmer thinks of the orchestra as technology. It's technology that's from a different era, you know, but just because it's wooden instruments doesn't make it boring. It makes it, you know, it means it's more evolved, if anything. So I, I really like the way that Hans Zimmer blends together some of the electronic elements with that orchestral sound um but we are getting into this this uh kind of era now where you know you can create any type of sound uh really in the world um or or even things that have never existed before through the use of computers and it's a little bit abstract because you know it's not mapped out quite as much but it means that there's this infinite horizon for what music can be it doesn't have to be something recorded off of a, a you know a string in uh, on a violin or something now it can be something that is you know maybe it doesn't actually it can't be reproduced on an instrument it has to go through all of these super advanced algorithms and everything that a computer can do and you look at someone like uh, like you know junkie xl tom holkenborg who did mad max you know, he's got six servers of computers all wired up so that he can use samples and, you know, blend everything together. And and uh, and it's just it's super advanced stuff that's that's even pushing the kind of computer engineering side of of the music industry. So I, I keep seeing kind of this cutting edge in this industry. And that's the cool thing, because the pop music world doesn't really do that. But in the film scoring world. You're always looking for the next thing, and uh, that makes it really kind of infectiously cool. I love your passion and enthusiasm, and I appreciate the fact he came on. Matt Schrader, his documentary is called Score. Make sure you check it out, all about the music of motion pictures. I have a CD. It's like yeah, going way back. Four CDs called Cinema Century, and it's like four CDs of like great music, and it's credit to your film. I've gone back now and started listening to all that great music again, even even like the Pink Panther. You can appreciate how good that soundtrack was, or at least the title track. Matt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. A Scorsese story. Steve. Steve Madden. <laughs> Every time I see Wolf of Wall Street, I can't do that enough. Jonah Hill trying to tell Leo DiCaprio. They're all on drugs. Steve. Steve Madden. Talk about taking chances. Wolf of Wall Street has got everything in there. A, a modern day bacchanal, bacchanalia. 
the funny word. That's it's got everything in there. Okay, normally Marty's movies have a lot of violence, a lot of profanity. This one just overloaded with sex. We got orgies on planes. We got uh, think about the the devotion to craft Leonardo DiCaprio did in this film. He has can, a candle stuck in his buttocks. Then, as we can only assume, hot candle wax poured on his back. He also sniffs cocaine out of a woman's buttocks, has sex with half a dozen women, uh, shows his bare buttocks, uh, simulates fellatio on another man, Steve Madden. I mean, this is an actor who clearly wanted to go all the way, and Leo does so. I think it's his best performance, certainly his most entertaining performance in The Wolf of Wall Street, what we're revisiting this time on Scorsese Stories. Only came out four years ago, but clearly this is what I was most amazed by with this. Marty's 70 years old, and it's arguably his funniest movie. Like, King of Comedy, he always says it's not a comedy, even though I think it's really funny. It has some dramatic, serious elements in it. So this is pure comedy. This is a dark, dark comedy. But it's funny. If you go to a theater, it's another comedy section, Wolf of Wall Street. And it's two hours and 52 minutes of just guys getting after it. And for those that love it, it has this wonderful energy about it. It's the closest movie he's made to resembling Goodfellas in terms of the direction and the camera work and the rise and fall you know, young guy enters this corporation, enjoys it all, drugs, sex, rock and roll, uh, inevitable decline, and then finds some sort of uh, denouement. So I think for anybody who loves Goodfellas, they always point to Wolf of Wall Street, obviously uh, different in terms of stockbrokers and gangsters, although if you talk to different people, they'll say it's kind of the same art form in terms of all the stealing and cheating they're doing. A few observations about it, though. One is Jonah Hill, who is just fantastic in the movie. And he has said this. He goes, no matter what happens in my life, Scorsese thinks I'm awesome. He goes, that's all I care about. The fact that Martin Scorsese is the greatest director of all time, and he cast me in this movie, and I'm just some fat guy who does these stupid movies. The fact that Marty cast me in this movie, because that's all I care to me. And he made the movie for scale, which he talked about with Howard Stern, who was just appalled by this. He said, what do you mean? He goes, DiCaprio gets $20 million and you get scale? He goes, how much is that? And I don't know if Jonah Hill actually confessed the amount, but I think if he did, it was something like hundred grand. And he goes, wait, you made $100,000 for this movie, which took like four months to make. And DiCaprio's getting $20 million. He's like, well, yeah, but, like, I'll make my money on uh, 21 Jump Street and, like, stuff like that. Like, that's fine. Like, I can get money elsewhere. This is a chance to work with Marty. I'll do it for scale. And he's fantastic. I mean, the scene, the first time you see him with those fake teeth and the way he's got those glasses look a little more waspy, the fact that he's married to his cousin, when he starts explaining his rationale why he married his cousin, I don't, I don't want everyone else you know, they, they can't have my cousin. They're all looking at her all the time. When he ties his sweater around him. How much you make? I'm going to quit my job right now. You show me a pay stub. I'm going to quit my job right now. Uh, all the scenes of him and, and DiCaprio, and there's nothing better than the Quaaludes scene. I mean, that is a real gift of physical acting. When Leo takes the Quaaludes, which he thinks are expired, but they just kick in later on. He goes right to, you know, these awful faces and starts rolling himself. Like, like in terms of physical comedy, that I'm telling you, that's like Chaplin-esque to see what Leo does when he gets off the phone, has to roll his way down the, the stairs, has to get in the car, somehow drive home. He grabs Jonah Hill. He starts choking on the ham. He has to save him from that. The fact that he starts seeing Popeye, that's what inspires him. The spinach is like his cocaine because the coke gets him up. Speaking of references, you know we've talked a lot about this documentary score. Marty's obviously not a guy who likes a lot of score. He likes using music. He likes using period music, the Rolling Stones, etc. This movie features Naughty by Nature, Hip Hop Hooray, Saplan Pour Moi, which is a great punk song. He's got the Out Here Brothers, Boom, Boom, Boom. Like, I would just love the person who's like, all right, Marty, this musical fit here. He's got Insane in the Membrane, Cypress Hill, one scene, one party scene. Kanye West was featured in the trailer for Wolf of Wall Street. Like, talk about Marty just taking chances and going out of his comfort zone. Like, all right, let's just go across the board of different types of music. I can't imagine he's dialing up on a Thursday night when he's sitting at home. Uh, but Wolf of Wall Street, those that didn't like it would say, okay, I get it. It's just so over the top. It's just 
just hammering you in the head with all the drug use and the fact that they're throwing little people and uh, making money off it. Interesting, too, there's three directors in the movie. Rob Reiner plays Mad Max with Leo's dad. John Favreau is in the movie. And Spike Jones is in the movie. Spike Jones plays the guy who first sells penny stocks. Leo goes to him. And he says, hang on a second, you get 50% commission off this? He's like, yeah, because if you sell $10,000 worth of stock, you get $5,000. That is Spike Jones. Those that don't know him, of course, he directed her and uh, Adaptation and some other movies as well. So I just thought it was interesting. Marty's like, all right, I'm going to cast some of my own directors in this movie. Rob Reiner's hilarious as Mad Max. He's just, he gets infuriated when someone calls him. Then he affects this weird British accent. Then he goes back to cursing. There's one hilarious scene where he's talking to Leo, and Leo's you know, confessing all the uh, adulterous activities he's doing when he's married to his first wife. Teresa, how about Margot Robbie? Just just show-stopping when she's in the movie. I mean, woo, wowee. Wolf of Wall Street, there's a lot to chew on. Maybe it's a little over the top. It's definitely excessive. But as Marty would tell you, I'm making a movie about excess, so that's why I've got to make it a little bit excessive uh, in terms of it. I also love Jean Dujardin. He was in The Artist, a movie that Marty loves, one best picture. Jean Dujardin plays the uh, Swiss bank operative who ends up helping out Leo and the guys. There's one scene where he says, his first introduction, he's like, I don't, I don't really speak English well. I don't know what you guys are saying. And later on, he's cursing at Leo in French. Leo's like, is, this, is, is my phone cracking up? Are you speaking French? We're like, English! They start getting mad at each other. How about the special effects, too? The yacht scene where the boat just goes on fire, the plane crashes. I mean, there's just, literally, Marty threw everything in the kitchen sink at Wolf of Wall Street. It has as many admirers as it does detractors. It was a huge success at the box office. It cost like $100 million to make, but I think it grossed at least 150 domestic. It did really well worldwide. And, of course, the reviews were uh, 77% Rotten Tomatoes. Good. Those that didn't like it, obviously, for the reasons I mentioned, five Oscar nominations. It was up for Best Picture, Best Actor for Leo, Best Director for Marty. Didn't win anything, but it did vindicate the fact that they were really trying to go all out. Wolf of Wall Street, where do you rank it, Dan Stanzik, among Marty movies? It feels so different because... I think of Marty and I think old I think older films, I think Goodfellas. So that this was it felt like a modern movie, so it didn't really feel like him. Right. My biggest quibble with Marty, and you know this, is he was excessive in everything, including how long the movie was. Like two fifty two? Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. Like get me two twenty at most. <laughs> so right. I mean, it was funny, it was great. I enjoyed it, but it just right. it dragged on and on and on. Rewatchability, so. you're not watching it again. The entire thing from start to finish, it would take a lot to rewatch the entire thing. Um, so it's probably not in his top five no, for me. Not no. one of his top five, but definitely one of his most entertain, purely entertaining movies. And I love the scene that him and Kyle, uh, Leo and Kyle Chandler on the yacht. So good because they're both just like uh, sharks circling each other's prey. And they're pretending to be jovial and chummy with each other. And then eventually, you know, Leo offers the guy a bribe. And he, there's another guy on the boat. Kyle Chandler motions over. He's like, can you say that one more time? Sound like you're trying to bribe it. No, 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 there was no bribe. No, no, no bribe. No, that's what it sounded like, Jordan. He's like, okay, get off my boat. Get off my boat. Okay, now the artifice is over. No more pretense here. We hate each other. I'm the bad guy. You're the good guy. You're going to try to capture me. I think you're some bum who rides a subway who wanted to be what I am. And Kyle Chandler's like, I got no respect for you. One of these typical rich boys. I'm going to get you. Really, really great scene. That's actually one of my favorite scenes of the movie. And there's no hijinks to it. The directing is very straightforward. Reverse. Uh, camera over the shoulders, no tricks, no music. It's just a great 10 minutes of back and forth between Kyle Chandler and Leo. Wolf of Wall Street, definitely entertaining. This was a lengthy pod, but I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next time. Plenty more reviews. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, getting good reviews. Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, that'll be reviewed on the next time we're talking here on Cinephile. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. 
Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.